0: Hi, you're listening to Conversations with a and I'm Alicia, a 40-year-old who recently had a large fibroid removed, and I'm also a coach to women who want to take back the value of their own self-worth.
1: And I'm Jess. I'm a 38-year-old endometriosis and thyroid disease warrior, former osteomate, and dedicated theater and dance educator in the Th- Chicagoland area. And we're your hosts. This week, we are bringing you episode three of our podcast. This is part two of our three-part series titled The Turning Point, Diagnosis, Procedures, and Life After Diagnosis. Today, we will be focusing on our procedures, or lack thereof, that led us to and through our diagnosis. Just a couple of disclaimers before we start this week's episode. We do not edit our bad words out, so listener discretion is advised. Also, information shared on this podcast should not be viewed as medical advice. As always, any information shared is for general knowledge only. Anyone experiencing medical or mental health crisis should speak with a medical provider directly. Listening to this podcast does not establish a client-patient relationship. Now, let's step into part two of the turning point. Procedures. So. (laughs) (laughs) Alicia I want to hear about the procedures that you've had leading up to through your diagnosis and uh, maybe a little bit about what not was given or done for you
0: yeah so I um have had only a few actual procedures to help track to my diagnoses um and saying that um You know, I I knew that I wanted to have a transvaginal ultrasound. I knew that was one of the best ways to discover if I had a fibroid. And since fibroids ran in my family for years, I went around and asked, can we just do this? And was just instantly brushed aside um, with doctors telling me it couldn't be fibroids. A couple doctors told me you don't get fibroids until after you have children. So that's not even a possibility to even look at right now. And then, uh, so what had happened was when I finally saw the gynecologist that um, agreed to it, they did a transvaginal ultrasound, um, which only took about five, 10 minutes. It was a very small procedure in the fanciest ultrasound room I can only imagine. It's crazy how fancy some of those rooms are. And um, the technician, it actually surprised me. The technician goes, oh yeah, Yep, you've got a fibroid. That's what's causing all that bleeding, I'm sure. And she's like, "Um, the doctor will talk more about you, more to you about this. Don't worry. And I was just like, I remember laying there (laughs) during the ultrasound and just being like, "Ah, I was right, like, all this time. Like, I was right. And it was like validating and heartbreaking at the same time. And so then, when I went um, and saw the doctor, we talked about the fibroid that I had, how large it was, and the procedures in which to start removing it. So then we agreed on getting on me having a procedure called the hysteroscopy and DNC, um, which is where they open your cervix and do the surgical procedure through vaginally. And um, I was able to get in to get that procedure done. On June 26, um, it was a Friday. It was a sunny, sunny, beautiful day here in Minnesota. And um, I guess the procedure lasted about 55 minutes. To me, I fell asleep and then woke up two minutes later. So um, as far as I was concerned, it was fairly easy. The cramping um, she, you know, she went over everything. They got 90 percent of the fibroid. Um, and she showed me like pictures, not knowing that I'm not the person that needs to see pictures. Unlike me, right? <laughs> Just wants to see it all. I do not. I get, I get what I call the hot sweats, and <laughs> like <laughs> can't take it sometimes. And um, she explained that she thought that this was really going to help with excessive bleeding, how frequent my periods were, and then after six, four to six periods. Um, we would go in and do another transvaginal ultrasound and a pap smear because by that time I'll need another base because she's my new doctor now. And um, we'll kind of evaluate to see if there's anything else going on with me, um, which was key for me in that moment because I thought the fibroid is going to take care of everything. I finally got my hope back and then I put all my hope on that one day. And it's the fact that she left the door rotating so that if there is anything else that I'm concerned about or worried about, then that's great. Um, And then when I went in for my next checkup, I did uh, develop a bacterial infection, which they just put me on a little, um, they did a pelvic exam and gave me some antibiotic and within like less than a week, I I was feeling so much better. So that is the very small amount of medical procedures That I actually got done to get to my diagnosis.
1: But it's so interesting because you had talked about last week during the episode how many times and how many different OBGYNs or gynecologists that you went to with all of these symptoms and not one of them thought to order this very quick, right, very information-providing diagnostic testing that would confirm yay or nay that, that fi- a fibroid, which again, you've shared with them and been able to provide a deep family history of this occurring in the females in your family. And it's just, it still boggles my mind that it took this many repeti- repetitions and, and new, ex- new connections with new
0: doctors to get this very simple test, right? And I think like the big aha uh-huh that I had with going away from that was um, you have to listen to your instinct and the person with the education isn't always listening because how hard would it, even if I didn't have a fibroid five, six years ago when, when my periods were heavy and I was looking for help initially before it escalated and got so bad, um, what's, what's the harm in that test? I mean, was, they never said anything. It's not going to be covered if it's not covered, if it doesn't have a medical diagnosis. But that's also on me as like the, per- the adult to decide, do I still want this test done? Let me check with my insurance. Um, and so I think the big thing for me after all of this is like, don't let them take your magic in understanding what your body needs I remember like many like at least a couple times talking to my personal trainer and I had found another doctor and I was gonna see her and, and he was like how are you feeling about this one and I was kind of just like well I mean we'll see and I wasn't I didn't put a lot of hope in it and I lost a lot of hope and I lost a lot of of faith in the medical world during that time you know because I they made me feel delusional and so I think my big aha moment is um keep calling until you find somebody who's willing to do that one test you know understand your medical insurance how much it's gonna cost but I mean don't be complacent like I was you know I was I became complacent which so many Americans are doing that's my plug for
1: uh Universal health care, Medicare for
0: all, that's a whole other different
1: series that we will talk about on this podcast, just from our own two very unique experiences, both of us working in the medical industry, one of us in insurance, one of us on the provider side, um, and just knowing those loopholes and the things to say. Um, One of the other things I wanted to touch on is, you know, you said that your new provider, which you felt and feel very confident with, you said that they kind of laid out a plan for you because they knew that that this wasn't an end-all be-all for you, that this wasn't going to take it all away. Mm -hmm. And you have a six, you know, almost like a six-month plan, right? Like I saw a funny meme the other day that said, hey, ladies, only four more periods till the end of the year. And I was like, oh boy, (laughs) that one made me laugh, right? And I thought of you and I was like, (laughs) Plus you have, <laughs> this is like not the best way to look at it. But so you had mentioned that they said, um, pardon me, I thought I wrote it down, uh, four to six periods, correct? In between when you'll have the next one. And um, and then they'll see what's going on.
0: Yeah. So
1: how does that make you feel knowing that you have about another, because it's already now what? So you have another maybe two to four months right. um, of kind of waiting and seeing. How
0: are you feeling about that? Do you feel okay? Do you feel taken care of? Um, I definitely feel taken care of. Um, My doctor has contacted me twice since my surgery just to check up on me. Well, my doctor did once and one of the nurses did the second time um, to make sure I was feeling okay from the infection. Um, So I do feel like if all of a sudden I had a 20-day period, I would call them and they would see me without a question and they would escalate that that time frame a little bit. Um, And I know because of my cousins particularly that fibroids can grow back Um, and sometimes it escalates. Um, So I'm also glad that we have this cycle of like getting it checked whenever I go see her. It's kind of like the plan so far is anytime I go in they'll do a quick one just to see if there's anything they need to be worried about. So I don't get to the point where, you know, on day of procedure, my hemoglobin was 7.1. And like how bad my energy was, how bad my mental health got, how like hopeless I felt before that appointment. Um, you know, like I really feel like they're doing a good job of like not just seeing me on an, as a number that they saw on June 26th, but as a person, I mean, she understands that I haven't given up on having my own children. Uh, we had long conversations about that, that first meeting. It was the first doctor's appointment I had where she sat down, and gave me full eye contact. We talked for probably 50 minutes. I didn't feel rushed or anything like that. So she asked me what my goals were with my life first, which is also different than all the other doctors that were like, well, an ablation or a hysterectomy, which which do you want? You know, so right now in this limbo, it's kind of learning my body now because it is different. My periods have been completely different and I don't, I almost have to like not panic the opposite way. Cause like the first one was so light. I was like, Oh gosh, something's wrong with me. Now I'm not bleeding enough. And then the second one was like, well, is this one more normal? And then it's like, okay, the supplies I have is for old Alicia how low do i go now and then like that's exciting but also like oh gosh what if i buy the wrong thing you know so it's like interesting the like the emotional roller coaster you still get even when you're seeing that improvement cuz there is a part of me that's just waiting for the kickstand to fall and then i fall over you know cuz that's how it was before if i had one good period one good month of only 5 days leading then the next one was like watch out you know, I'm coming back for you. <laughs> well,
1: it's interesting that you said that your hemoglobin the day of your procedure was seven point one because I remember correctly from our first podcast you had said that the doctor that was that looked at you um, when you were with your mom said that we wanted it 12, they'll accept 10, but 10 isn't ideal. So you were so drastically below the normal that at that point in your life, you really needed a blood transfusion. You probably were a candidate to receive a pint or two of blood, you know, and, um, that's crazy. And you were functioning like you were a functional adult.
0: You were going to work, you were doing, doing your thing. I would say I was functioning until March and then, and then I just, I couldn't honestly, like even I rem- the day before I saw my doctor, I almost passed out in the shower and I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't brush my hair. Like it was like every ounce of energy had left me in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I got scared because I was you know, like, if the weather was nice in Minnesota, which in March is kind of a crapshoot, you don't know if you're going to get that. Um, if it's nice, I love taking long walks because I find it therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And then when I almost passed out in the shower, I was like, ooh, what can you do that's not going to, like, you don't want to pass out on a sidewalk somewhere, you know? You can't mm-hmm. pass out on your treadmill because, w- ow, that seems painful, oh, you know. I don't, I- I I hope there's a video of that somewhere sorry slide it backwards crashing into the
1: wall there's a there's a meme or a gif somewhere
0: (laughs) no but it's just like at that point especially after that doctor's appointment when we had a game plan and she validated everything that I was going through I also kind of just let myself feel it Mm -hmm. you know like my work schedule was different I was on like this COVID leave Um, that they were offering at work and so I didn't have to go into work for like six weeks so I took them up on that since it was paid and I felt I allowed myself to feel the pain of the cramps and I allowed myself to just sleep. I was taking three or four naps a day from April until my surgery in June because I just couldn't recover enough sleep.
1: Mm -hmm. And just think like, like again, we had talked about this in in part one of this series about how we both got to that breaking point, like we had survived for so long on a hamster wheel of pain and discomfort and heavy bleeding, and then it was the point of no more, right our bodies were giving up, and
0: we're not we 're not old, but we 're not young either, right, so I think a part of gender inequality is um at least for me i felt it because i know yours was more stomach issue related than period related but for me i never wanted to be that girl that used her period to get out of stuff we all know we all know that one girl that like uses that as a crutch so i was still working out whenever i could and there were times i shouldn't have and there was one time in particular, I got so dizzy with my trainer, he like made me sit down. And I think that was the first wake up call with him where he was like, all right, what's going on here? Like, this is more serious than we think, you know? And I think for me, it was a pride issue of this happens every month to women, millions of women. Like, can I really say like, no to something because of this, you know? And then why can't I? You know, there was also that question. And then when I allowed myself to say no because of it, I actually was lucky. I feel like, you know, the world shut down with COVID. And so there was absolutely no shame for me to stay in bed all day. There was no shame for me to like eat my feelings. I mean, I gained so much weight between April and my surgery, you know, that like I'm about to start up with my trainer again and I'm super excited and scared like crazy because it's gonna be like day one again like because I've gained the weight I've lost my muscle mass I had like I was really good at a lot of the weights that I lifted with him even throughout all that trauma so I trying to tell myself if you can do that when you're averaging 20-day periods imagine what you can do now that you had a four-day period last month you know well, and-
1: just that. Like, you know, who cares that you gained some weight during this time? Because that's what your body needed to survive what it was going through as well. You know, like you were putting your body in a constant state of stress and probably releasing ungodly amounts of cortisol because your body was so stressed while you were working through that traumatic experience of 20-day periods. And, you know, good on you for finding the good in COVID, right? I have the same feeling as you. I'll talk about that when I talk about my procedures. But that's the other thing too, is us, us as women, we're meant to think that we have to work through a period. We have to work out through a period. We have to work out through when our body is tired because we're taught that nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And that's what we should be, you know, going through. And you're putting your body through these things that are so traumatic to the body, to the mind, to the, to the physical body, to the spiritual body that um, obviously that was Part of the reason why your body stopped and said, "Nope, we're not going to do this." Thank God you got that time to take three naps a day because that's what your body needed to recover from months, if not years, of traumatic experience. And now, as you start on a healing journey or a healing path, you can approach all of those activities that you really loved and you were interested in becoming stronger and faster and you know more flexible. All of those things can be for the right reasons, right? And from a healthy body. Yeah.
0: Right. So yeah. So different. it's it's been a roller coaster, and I'm excited to share what happens the next six months. Especially after, I'll definitely do a check in with everyone after my uh, my next doctor's appointment. You know, just to kind of, I'm interested too. Like, is it growing back? Is there anything else that we need to worry about? So I'm excited about that. Yeah,
1: for sure. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I mean, it seems so little, but that I did wanted to just to say that listeners, if you have stuff going on, there are diagnostic tests, right? And this was one of the things we've touched on a little bit in all of our episodes so far, all of us, we look at us with our three episodes, oh my goodness, um, but is when a doctor is sitting across from you and they're taking a patient intake and if they're not listening and they're not hearing you, right, we stress that, that they're not hearing you and they're going to say, nope, and they're going to send you on your way and say that quote unquote things are normal or there's nothing that they can see is wrong. What you need to do for yourself is ask them to document that in your chart. Please please say to them, I need you to document that you are not ordering any tests that you do not believe anything is wrong. And I need that to be in my chart because that is going to put a whole lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. on the provider. Because at that point, they are relinquishing their willingness to look further into something that you came to help to them for help for. And if that's in your chart, and then you go to another provider, maybe within the same thing, and they see that in your chart, they're going to say, well, this this person, you know, you, you, you they didn't do any of these testings. I'm going to do that for you. Because then it's not just that you've been to this provider and this provider and this provider, and they've not done that. When they when you make put that responsibility on them, they're either going to change their tune and order some diagnostic testing for you, or they're going to put that in your chart because they need to, because you've requested them to. And then that, that's going to be a mark on them.
0: Yeah right? Yeah, that's and, a great tip that I'll take with me in the future. You have to. And I've learned that from life. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, right? tell us a little bit about all of the procedures that you went to, because your your story is kind of opposite of mine in the sense of number of procedures. Yes. So in if we're going
1: toe-to-toe in hashtag mark to hashtag mark of or hash mark of what we've had done. I've had a pretty long list, a laundry list of them. Um, I've put off some of these procedures for fear of cost. Um, That's, again, another thing that we'll talk about in the future. But I've had, um, you know, as a child, I had ultrasounds of my thyroid because when I was born, as I shared with you before, part of my thyroid was missing. It never developed. So that already put me at a lack of thyroid function as a child. Um, I've had lots of x-rays. I've had x-rays of my um, upper right quadrant, which is the upper part of your stomach um, to the right side, more specifically. I've had them of the KUB which is kidney, urinary, and bladder. I've had midline x-rays. I've had um, lower abdominal x-rays. I've had transvaginal ultrasounds. I've had multiple ones of those. And the most recent one I had was the most painful and worst experience of my life, but I will get back. that, I've had multiple CT scans with and without contrast, um, with and without oral contrast. There's lots of different ways that you can do CT or CAT scans. I've had MRIs where you have to lay very, very still for a very long amount of time with IV contrast. Um, I've had a HIDA scan, which is a specific scan that they use to test the functionality of your gallbladder. I've had two colonoscopies. Um, I'm due for a third one in 2021. I've had an upper endoscopy. I've had a diagnostic laparoscopy to diagnose um, endometriosis. I've had an emergency Hartman's procedure, which is a resection of my sigmoid colon. And I've also had a Hartman's procedure takedown, which is where they reversed the placement of my colostomy and sewed me back up. And I've had about three, what they call proctoscopes, which is basically like a mini colonoscopy without the prep and without being asleep. So you do, do the imagining at that point. <laughs> um, so that's a pretty laundry, big laundry list, right? Um, I'm really going to focus, I think, talking about the procedures that I've had in the last year, because I had all of these things to try to diagnose what was going on. And it would, I, I talked about this. Um, through my journey of diagnosis on part one of this series Um, but it started with an x-ray of my abdomen and and, an ultrasound of my gallbladder and that was in March of 2019 and both of those things were done because I had gone to the doctor with pain and we couldn't we couldn't understand it I wasn't able to eat and they were trying to rule out what was causing this um, Fluctuation between extreme diarrhea and extreme constipation, as well as pain every time I ate. So the reason why they were thinking it was my gallbladder, to what they told me, and this is interesting, um, and you probably will hear this a lot as women or females, um, assigned females at birth. It's a new thing I've learned to 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 uh, say in the today's day and age. Um, is that a woman in her mid thirties who has not had children can be one of the people who are affected the most by gallbladder ba- um like functionality uh delay or excuse me decrease um and that's been uh, that that pushed a button in me i was like hold on because i am this m- many years old and i didn't have a kid you're telling me my gallbladder's like nah girl i'm good we're just gonna stop working um And they said yes they checked first what they called gallstones which is kind of um sediment that kind of creates like little pea like things in your gallbladder which can get caught in there or get caught trying to pass themselves through into the small intestines all of those came back normal and they literally sent me out the door and said so sorry i don't know what's up and so i had to call my primary care doctor at that time and i was living in madison and i said i cannot live off of vegetable broth and soggy crackers so what are we going to do now And her response was, I'm going to send you for a CT scan of your gallbladder, and if that comes back normal, I'm going to send you to um, the hospital for a HIDA scan, and we're going to test, you know, the functionality of your gallbladder. So I went in, and I had the CT scan, and everything came back unremarkable. We talked about that term yesterday, or not yesterday, but the other day, and I had a HIDA scan. So with a HIDA scan, they take a bunch of pictures of your gallbladder and video of your gallbladder then they make you drink this fatty drink cuz your gallbladder processes fat um, mostly and so basically what is happening is they're creating this drink or you're drinking this drink so that they can watch through video and pictures how that drink goes through your pro- like through your through your stomach into your gallbladder, into your small intestines, and they'll tell you like the functionality of your gallbladder. And they will only take a gallbladder typically if it's functioning at less than 35%. So you can be losing, you could be, you know, every you could lose everything up to 35%. And then the, at that 35% is where they think it's dangerous, which is like a lot
0: of functionality. number. yeah. I thought yeah. I thought you were about to say 65, 70. Mm-mm so mine was functioning at
1: 65%. So there was still 35% oddly enough of my gallbladder that was not functioning. Um and so I said, well what happened to that 35%? And they're like, "Well, your age." And I was like, "I'm only 37 years old." Like Oh, that's, that's, that's a button that just pushes me. So they said, nope, everything's okay. So again, I talked to my primary care doctor and she said, well, I'm going to send you to a GI doctor. And so back to a GI doctor, I went and he wanted to do an endoscopy to see if I had a hernia an ulcer or celiac disease. All of which I was like, I don't, I don't have any of the symptoms of any of those things. Right. And I had already had the blood test for celiac and that came back negative.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I went in and I had the endoscopy and everything looked unremarkable. Everything was great. And he was like, I think you have this, this disorder called sphincter of Odi, where your sphincter that connects your gallbladder um, to your small intestines is um, spasming. And what we can do is a procedure, um, which is basically an, an upper endoscopy with x-ray and we'll cut that muscle and um, you will probably experience diarrhea for the rest of your life, but you won't have this bad cramping or these attacks um, or these flares. And I was like, how do we know that that's for sure what's causing it? He's like, we don't, but you know, process of elimination. I was like, it's, it's not. So me, like you went online and I was reading and I had a friend who was an OBJYN and she's like, they're safe. I've done them on pregnant women before and I got a new job. So I I felt it in my bones that this specific thing was not what was causing Mm. my pain. And so things started to get better, then they got bad again. And so in all of this time, this is still 2019, in December of 2019, I had another colonoscopy because I was due for one. I had had precancerous polyps five years prior, Mm -hmm. so I needed to do a follow-up one anyway. So we scheduled it and I had it, two more precancerous polyps were found. But other than that, my colon looked super healthy on the inside, nothing going on with it. And so in the middle of this, you're thinking like, am I crazy, right? Like this is what's happening when I eat, but everyone keeps telling me it's crazy. And then came the insistence, try this low FODMAP. You should try this, increase your fiber. Like it was all about what I was eating. And I followed these things. And we, we we have discussed you and I about talking a lot about that default to to just change your diet. It's gonna change your life, right? And I do believe that all of your health is a lot controlled in your gut, you know, like, but that's why we're supposed to eat food that makes us feel good. Cause it's, it's supposed to make us feel good. Right. So I tried the little FODMAP, nothing was working. And I finally got my new primary care doctor to refer me to the OBGYN. And we talked about this on um, part one of this as well. He said, there's two ways to diagnose endometriosis. And cause he thought that's what I had. He's like, no one with the GI Workup that you have had with no results of what happened is is normal, and this is, I think, an example of endometriosis, and it can grow on your bowel. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, well, what can we do? And he had said, well, we can try three months of birth control. Will we stop your period and see if that helps? And I said, well, there are months, like I said, and I started to learn too that the flares or attacks that I were having was like in this three week period. And then I had one week a month where I felt totally normal. Nothing was hurting. It was not hard to go to the bathroom. It wasn't easy to go to the bathroom. Um, And I was finding that things were cyclical. So it's starting to add up to me that this could be endometriosis. So we, I said, you know, I'm not gonna put hormones in my body. I've never had birth control. I don't think that that's going to help my situation. And I don't wanna take it if we don't know that this is the culprit, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, well, the only way to truthfully di- diagnose endometriosis is to see it. And the only way we can do that is through a diagnostic laparoscopy, which is a non or a low invasive procedure where they um, insert a camera Um, in three different places on your belly after they've kind of blown up your belly and they can look around at all the organs. And he had made a laundry list of organs that he wanted to look at, including my appendix, my gallbladder, my liver, my kidneys, my stomach, um, every part of my bowel and every reproductive organ. So he was ready and I felt incredibly, like I was in really good hands. Um, I'm gonna put an asterisk here because I had shared a lot of this story with a lot of my Facebook friends and I had a really good friend from high school reach out to me and a really good friend from my college dance team that I was on reach out to me now my friend of my college dance team begged me to see the specialist that she saw in Atlanta because she had dealt with endometriosis and so many procedures and failed ones. And she had failed procedures by OBGYNs that really harmed her body. And so she had had this experience. And so we had gotten on the phone a couple of times and she begged me and I said, I just feel like he knows what he's talking about. Like he knew that there was four different ways that the endometriosis, endometriosis can present itself, meaning that there's four different shades, right? that it can show itself as. He knew, you know, he knows that the excision is the best way. Excision is when you cut it out, like you would cut out a a wart, not burning it off. Like he was ticking all the boxes in my head of someone who really had experience with endometriosis. Mm. Um, He's a young, young male doctor. So it's not like he had been practicing this for 20 plus years. He's an active OBGYN, which means this is not his primary focus or his private, primary area of expertise he's delivering babies he's helping people get pregnant you know what I mean like this the endometriosis isn't his niche right so he went in and I talked about this and he went in for the diagnostic lap and confirmed that I had the stage 4 endo and in the middle of it perforated my bowel um, unbeknownst to him And so on February 1st, I ended up going back into the hospital after a couple of trips to the ER over about a week and a half after the um, original diagnostic lap um, and a hospital stay in between that. And I had another CT that confirmed I had a baseball size abscess Um, and it was in a spot so actually so i had the i had the procedure on the 23rd and on the 24th i went into the er and my white blood cell count was incredibly high and um they ran a ct scan and they said you know there's a little bit of fluid here in your abdomen but that's normal you just had surgery yesterday and um i was in so much pain that i was crying and i'm as i'm sitting on this um, ER cart, right? They're not even real beds. Um, a, a very, very uh, curt Russian woman came in with her ultrasound machine and said, we need to do a transvaginal ultrasound. And I said, there's just no way I can have anything up there right now. I'm in so much pain. And she said, well, if you we don't do this, we can't see what's going on. And she just didn't care. She had one job. I was crying I was in pain. They couldn't get it under control. We were already there for two hours and they basically did a transvaginal ultrasound as I am sitting upright Mm. on that cart. And so for those of you who don't know listeners, it's basically the most comfortable way you could do it is laying on your back with your legs up to give yourself some sort of comfort in an insertion of a very large probe. That's going to take pictures of your, of your insides. Right. I didn't get that courtesy in this moment, but I also realized that they had a job too. They needed to get the imaging at whatever cost they could, because it was only going to be uncomfortable. She was so funny. She's like, I need you to count to 20. And she thought, I forgot to 20. And she was, see, all done. (laughs) So in the end, she was, she was hard on me, but she knew what she needed to do to get the doctors what they needed in that ER visit. So anyways, I go, you know, fast forward to February 1st and that baseball-sized abscess is in the exact same area that that fluid was, Mm. right? So my body was already starting to tell them this is not normal the day after that surgery. um, I had that CT scan, and then they said, well, we need to drain your abscess. And so they called in intravenous radiology because it was so big. And so I had, um, intravenous radiology is basically when they, they, um, access pockets of infection or things with the help of imaging guidance, right? So it's someone who is going to use the CT scan to help them get exactly where they need to, to place these drains. Um, the drain that they put inside me was called the pigtail drain and the fluid was gross. Awful, awful, awful. Um, Three days later, I was told that they were, I could go in for a surgery that would clean out the abscess. The OBGYN who did the diagnostic lab asked me if I wanted him to take care of the rest of the endometriosis. Um, And I had shared all all of that with you guys on part one of this. Um, And I said, no. Um, Well, actually, first I asked him, if I was your wife, what would you do? And he said, take care of the abscess only. And I said, well, then that's what I want you to do, right? If that's what he would have done on his wife, then that's how I want him to treat me. Um, And so he said, okay, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to try to do it laparoscopically again, but there is a chance that I won't be able to do it to the, to the fullest. So you might wake up with an incision from a C, like, like a C-section, and it would be a horizontal incision on your lower abdomen so that I could access that area and properly, thoroughly clean it out. So I went to sleep on February 4th, thinking that that was what was going to happen. And about 11 and a half hours later, I woke up and like I shared with you guys, I had the procedure of um, an, what they call an emergency Hartman's procedure. So the part of my sigmoid colon was damaged and they pulled that up through to the surface of my stomach. So that would be functioning as, as my butt. And so that, that's my, my nickname front butt, right? I wasn't pooping out my butt anymore. I was pooping out my tummy. And then we were going to let my lower intestines heal because they were, they were instance some, uh, some dire straits there. So, um, For four months, I had a front butt and I was living the colostomy life. And then on May 29th of this year, a very skilled, very talented surgeon put me back together. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to. She sat me down like you, all of a sudden I met this person and I shared with you guys, Dr. K was not someone I wanted near me. She ended up saving my life and making me have a very different outlook on life. And um, she said, you know, I need to lay out every single possible situation that could happen when I get in there. And one of them is you will wake up and still have this colostomy back. Another one is I'm going to move it and create what we call a loop ileostomy. So that's going to allow your large intestines to heal. We're going to use your small intestines as your main intestines, and then we're going to put them back together. So those were two options that I could wake up with my same colostomy or what we call a loop ileostomy. Um, And I went in for surgery knowing all of the different things that could come out of this, and I woke up, put back together. No more front, but all of the... uh, piping reworked, all the detours taken down, and my highway of intestines back together. Um, I have about another nine months of recovery from two very big abdominal surgeries that were midline open incision, and uh, we've not dealt with my endometriosis yet. So here we are.
0: Crazy, right? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the fear before some of your procedures, because you hold that in really close to yourself, and only in a moment of vulnerability do you share it. And I, t- I messaged you right before your abscess was about to be like um, drained, and I, I send you what I call angel notes that just intuitively come to me, and I send to you, and your response back was the first time I knew it was a big deal what was going on because you showed your fear in that moment. And so kind of talk to me a little bit about that the fear before some of these procedures, because I will say before that last surgery, I didn't get the feeling unless you're holding it in that the fear was there as strongly that you were like, ready to like take that step and hopefully not have that bag anymore that you had to worry about. Yeah. Um, so the first surgery, like you said, I think
1: was the scariest for me because I didn't really even know how sick I was then. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because so many people, I had said to three or four different doctors after they had drained that abscess with the pigtail drain, and they kept telling me, well, the pathology is coming back, got back. And I kept saying, is there a hole? You know, he worked on something. And so I was still in, I think, I, like you You even commented that I defense, like I, because I've worked in the medical field, I can understand procedure. I can understand medical necessity and I can understand needing, like I can handle all of the big things in the world, but if you don't put the dishes away at night, it's going to set me off, right? Like you can tell me you got a slice into my colon and they'll show me some pictures, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is about me Um, But I remember that text and the conversation that we had, and there was a level of fear because I had, I again had never gone under um, complete general anesthesia. I've always been in twilight, right? So when you have um, a diagnostic lap, it's not, it's actually, I think I was under general anesthesia for that one too. I was because I was in the OR. So When I went in for the diagnostic lap, I didn't really fear anything. I will tell you that when they put me to sleep for that, the last thing I remember, and I have PTSD from, is I felt like my tongue was swelling up as they were putting this gas mask on me, and I was saying over and over again, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and those were the last things that I remembered, so I took that in with me to this next surgery, and I remember... texting with you and putting on a brave face and just thinking, this is okay. We're going to be okay. He said, he's going to clean it up and we can deal with everything later. And I don't think it hit me, honestly, until I had gone to an appointment with the infectious disease doctor about a month after I had been home. Like really what my body had been through physically, mentally, um, I just, I don't think I could process it you know what I mean? Like I was, you're literally just on survival at that point. And Mm -hmm. I imagine that that's what happens when people get specific diagnoses, right? Um, And it's when I, when I could get through that, through a lot of therapy, through a lot of help from my friends like you, from talking to other people, from the colostomy groups that I joined on Facebook, um, I prepared myself for that second or that reconnection surgery. And I truly believe that having Dr. K literally meet with me three or four times before that reversal surgery, again, it was an emergency, right? Like I had time to prepare, I had time to process what was going to happen, what we were going to use, what I was going to feel like afterwards, because it was all presented to me. And when I went into surgery on February 4th, prepared for a small vertical, or excuse me, horizontal incision, I didn't, I wasn't prepared on what happened on the other side,
0: Yeah,
1: you know? And so it, it is, it is hard. Cause I think I can handle those kind of things, but I, I think, I think I, I, I went through some pretty dark places after that first surgery coming out on the other
0: side. I don't think I had time to think of it mm-hmm. before they had to do it, you know? Right. Well, uh, and I say one thing that's interesting that came out of this was you definitely found your voice um I'm not on Facebook a whole lot but I know you were on posting your story and just being very verbal about like why did it take this long to find this and we need answers and something needs to change and that's actually what led to this you and I had toyed with different ideas for for podcasts some fun some serious some we just wanted an excuse to be able to like connect on a regular basis, I think. Um, And it was almost perfect timing because you and I, the dates are kind of similar of 2020 of when this was happening and that was happening. And so, I mean, we're here today and this podcast is going to help people because, because of your journey, because I'm okay with sharing it, but you were very adamant about like, nope, we need to do this. We need to do this. And I physically, you were ready to do it before my surgery because you were like ready and raring to go. I was not in a physical spot to do that yet. Um, One other thing that I have a question on for you is hindsight now. So taking a step back, looking at all of the procedures you've had as a whole in each doctor, is there anything that you wish you knew then that you know now? Meaning, um, specifically, um, the procedures that that they ordered, even how they described the procedures and why they did the procedures for you. Um, is there anything that you wish you had asked that you feel might have been a little bit more beneficial now that you look look back or just kind of like what's your hindsight looking back? Um, hindsight
1: for me is I wish that every surgeon treated me the way that Dr. K did. I think that she prepares her patients. She told me, I hate to be that doctor that gives you doom and gloom as an option, um, but I need you to know every single possibility so that you're prepared for every single possibility. And one of the things she said to me is no one should ever wake up from a surgery the way that you did, right? Yeah. So when people are in emergency situations, when they go into the ER, it is very important for people, for doctors, to explain it, be it to the patient or to the advocate that they have with them, the person that they have by their side, so that it is understanding. And like you said, sometimes you need two ears there, right? Like it is very important to have people with you. I had people with me every time I went to the doctor after my big surgery, cause I was still, me- I cried every time I went to the doctor. I just was mentally broken after that. Like, and I just, I think, in hindsight, I'd ask a thousand more questions about possibilities of diagnostic laparoscopies. I think sometimes um, doctors suggest things to patients, kind of like that doctor that wanted to do that ERCP so flippantly and make it, again, they're that trusted medical professional, the educated person that you think is going to steer you in the right direction. Um, I think that they need to tell you all of all of the dangers right the cons of this specific procedure all of the things that could happen you know so that you know that so that you can weigh that you know like they and they make you sign these papers at the everything every time you go somewhere and you sign a paper it's like you're basically almost signing away if they mess up or something happens that they're not at fault for it, you know, and so if that's the case, then I want a laundry list of all of the things that these procedures entail. I mean, there is a a risk at having a CT scan right so every time they inject you with that contrast that is a risk when you ingest barium contrast there is a risk and i don't think that they share that with us enough and i after my hartman's reversal i i know how a surgeon should treat their patient and i will never settle for less and i will spend the rest of my life making sure that everyone has a
0: doctor as detailed and caring as dr k yeah the rest of my life. Yeah. I think that our two big take-homes is no is never acceptable. Like if Mm-mm. you feel it in your gut that the answer you're getting isn't right, or you're asking them to do something or check something, you keep asking till somebody somebody does that. And in what you're talking about now, like ask until you feel so knowledgeable about the situation that you can mm-hmm. describe it and explain it To somebody else who doesn't even understand, so that you can wrap your head around it in all ways. You know, I'm blessed in the sense that one of my closest people in my life, my cousin, is a nurse practitioner. And so I would all the time, I always call her, like, mom's blood pressure is this, is that good or bad? I don't even know. Like, tell me, tell me, tell me, you know. And we actually had a backup plan because of my health insurance. I can go anywhere in the country. Um, as long as they're in network in that state. And so I'm lucky in that sense. And I called her and I said, she works for Ohio State Medical Center. And I said, if this doctor doesn't help me on April 1st, I'm getting in my car and you're going with me and you're gonna like be my advocate. Cause clearly I can't, I, I pride myself on like advocating for my parents when they go to the doctor, like no is not acceptable. We're figuring these answers out and you're answering all of my questions till I'm exhausted. Um, and so I think that's interesting that you and I wanna do that for other people too, to empower them to be able to say, no, like that's not, who do I need to talk to? Because that's not acceptable right now. When
1: it's like you said, like sometimes it's so much easier to advocate for other people than it is for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to medical things, it's very, very easy to feel like you, and I don't like to, I don't like the word stupid, but you can feel stupid when doctors are talking to you. They belittle us. They throw, it's what you're eating is causing your symptoms. They throw out that they are fat phobic. They say, well, your size is the reason why you're having these issues, you know, and I have gotten that for my whole life. That's another topic. We're going to go, we talked about that before we came on today. Um, just, you could spend 15, 20 episodes talking about, um, the fat phobic diet culture that we're all ingrained in, and that's the scariest thing, right? And you, you, when it it's from a doctor, you're like, okay, am I stupid? Right. You know. And so that's hard and you, you feel silenced or you feel embarrassed. And then how many times have you left the doctor's office and been like, oh my God, I didn't ask that question. Right. And for me, I got into the habit of writing down my questions because I was going to the doctors every two to three weeks. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was first home, I was at a doctor pretty much every day, if not my ostomy nurse. And so I constantly had a medical journal where I was like, I need to track this because they need to know, Right. Mm -hmm. and, um, I had a question for you. We, you had asked me about, you know, like kind of like about where I was before my procedure. I know that you were at your lowest. Um, if you, if you could describe how it feels at your lowest, I want you to describe that, but then take me on the journey to where you're at right now. Like how has that evolved recently?
0: Um, so for me, the worst was feeling so alone. Mm you know, like, even after I was validated, when I, like, allowed my body to, like, feel, let it, not ignore it anymore, and the thing is, I wasn't ignoring it to an extreme before, because I could tell them how bad my cramps were, but it was more like, I was just in it, you know, I was, like, present. Um, I just felt so alone, and that was, like, the worst feeling. I felt like, you know, you have those questions of why did this happen to me? You know, and then there is the self-blame, like, well, yes, you've been working out with your trainer for three and a half years, but did you give a hundred percent every time you worked out? What if you did? Maybe that would change this. Um, What if, what if you lived your life a little differently? What would that be like? What if, what if you called, even like being mad at myself for like, why didn't you call that clinic? It's only, it's a 10 minute drive from your house. Why didn't you think of calling that clinic? You know, so I went through this roller coaster of really beating myself up this spring. And that was probably the hardest part because I felt like a little part of me was like, well, you deserve it because you didn't, you didn't do the steps right. Clearly you failed at life, you know, and and it's funny, you you bringing up the age of your gallbladder and all that. Oh my gosh, from the time I was 33, I was hearing that I was in the geriatric age for my uterus. And if I wanted to have a kid, like, might as well just like go get knocked up right now and get that taken care of because there, there may not be hope for you. And I didn't want that way of life. Um, and so then there was the regret of like, what if this doesn't fix it and you've lost that opportunity, you know? And so it was a hard roller coaster that I'm still, you know, talking to a therapist about because I think self-forgiving is the most important thing that you can do. And it's the hardest thing. I can forgive the doctors who ignored me before I can forgive myself for allowing myself to be ignored. And that's what makes me cry. Um, me being mad at myself or thinking that um, I some way deserved it because I didn't ask the question in the right way to get them excited to like try to help me you know and then um, with the procedure it was interesting walking into the surgical center because of COVID I had to walk in there alone which turned I wasn't scared about my procedure, but I just wanted my mom in the bed in in like the building, you know, cause like, like I love my parents when you're sick. I don't care how old you are. If you have great parents, you want your mom there. And I just wanted to know my mom was in the waiting room, not at my sister's house, five minutes away from the surgical center. And I remember like, here you are again, all alone, having surgery. And it wasn't a major procedure, quote, unquote. Um, it was a very short procedure, especially compared to what you had. But it, there was still that fear of, I have confidence and faith in my doctor, but it hasn't worked out for me for so long. What if this is just one more disappointment? And then afterwards, actually leading up to actually going, being wheeled into the surgical room, the anesthesiologist and the nurse and like the second anesthesiologist who knew you needed two in a room at a time but like um they all came in and I don't know if this is normal because this is other than or like my wisdom teeth removed that's the only procedures I've had like surgically but they all just kept saying like you're in good hands with Dr. Mahan like We're going to take care of you. We're going to help you. I remember the anesthesiologist saying all we care about is that you're not in pain so if you wake up and you feel anything he's like you just let me know and I'll fix you up and I felt like it was like verbal hugs of like you're in the right place. You're with the right people. You know I always say it's always interesting connections that you find and like the nurse was the aunt of somebody I work with. And it was just like this weird, like the world is a small place type of a thing, you know? Um, And then afterwards, when she like, my doctor went through the procedures, she said it went well. told me that they got the 90% of the the tumor and she gave me the plan for like the next week or so um, for care. Um, Every day I would say, I got a little bit more hopeful. You know, the cramping was bad, but it wasn't, it was actually less than the cramping that I experienced before my surgery, Um, which I commented to my doctor about when she called to check in on me. And she couldn't believe that I wasn't taking any of my pain pills because, I mean, it was nothing compared to what I had had. I took them only at night to sleep just because I wanted to try to sleep through the night, but I don't think I really needed that even. but I would say each day that I step away from there, I just feel like hopeful that I can live my life, you mm-hmm. know, and probably at least the last two years, I I couldn't because it controlled my life so much. You know, when you're bleeding as much as I was bleeding, there's only so much you want to do because that's always a f- in in your mind, you know, and so um i would like just people to know that like once you find a doctor that you have faith in like i found and you found um you'll still have a roller coaster but like you'll slowly start feeling a little bit more hopeful about your life and like that's that's what you need you know not even if everything's cured and fixed but when you lose hope that's scary mm-hmm. It
1: is. And I think that's, that's such a beautiful way that you said it. Like there's a moment where you felt alone, but every day that you get away from it, you, you probably feel a little more protected, a little bit more supported because you have this provider. I remember the same thing, you know, I've been on that operating room table, which day surgery and the operating rooms are kind of different. Um, Similar. I'll touch on that real quick. I had Um, an anesthesiologist doctor who put in my epidural, who was my main anesthesiologist. And then I also had a second anesthesiologist who was a female who was not only with me on my reversal, but she was there on my placement. Mm. And I had said to her, and I remembered her eyes, right? Um, I had said to her, please don't let me see the mask coming to my face. And she said, I remember you don't like that, you won't do that, don't worry. Like, so just having those moments, I had a new OBGYN in, in this OR with me, um, the second surgery, the reversal surgery, and it, they are doing their best to make you feel at ease. Now you go to sleep and you can't tell if it's 30 minutes, two hours or 10 hours, right? Like the, the moments just are fleeting. Um, but I, I feel that I was with you on that. There's moments I had to go in for my second surgery for, because of COVID by myself. Now, Lisa did get to be with me 15 minutes before I went back to the OR. And then after they brought me back from the slow recovery area and into my room, um, she got to be with me for 15 minutes, mainly because I had the epidural and they needed someone to remember the information that they were going to give. Um, and she was basically there to watch me wake up look for my bag that was missing and then start to cry and then they ushered her out again because anesthesiology came back um thank god for facetime and um you know but i felt so in such good hands with the people you know and the nurses i can never talk well enough about these nurses right they don't get half the credit that they need to have um, But it is, it does feel, it feels like a lonely journey sometimes when you're not being listened to, when you're not being heard. And our goal as always with this podcast is to give people a voice or a place to have a conversation with people who want to listen to them, right? Mm -hmm. And procedures are freaking scary, right? They have risks that none of us know about. And so finding a provider that will tell you the risks. Um, One of the things I did want to share before we sign off today, one of the biggest takeaways, because you had asked me this before is if I could say anything to anybody is listen to the people that have come before you. They don't tell you their stories to scare you. They tell you because they've had learned experiences and they want to give you the things to look out for or to question or to have that discussion with your doctor. And I would tell anybody who is experiencing severe GI symptoms with no GI diagnosis and they are female that it could be endometriosis. And if they are going to look for endometriosis, request that a colorectal rectal specialist is there. You, already have all the symptoms. All of those things are pointing to there. It could be adhesions, endometriosis adhesions on your bowel. And someone who knows all about the bowels needs to be there for you. And I have been praising that in my Facebook groups and so many women have reached out to me and said thank you for sharing that. My story is freaking scary. It's not normal. It's a complete, you know, one probably X amount of people but Let's be frank, if I'm speaking numbers like that, 1 in 10 women have endometriosis.
0: Yeah.
1: 1 in 10, and it takes them 7 to 10 years to get a diagnosis. 1 in 10 women have fibroids that go undiagnosed for years until they're so big, you know, some women go, "Oh, I I had no idea." And then they ha- they give birth to a fibroid, you know what I mean? Like that's as large as a child. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair. And women need to be heard and listened to when they're in pain or their bodies aren't feeling right so that they don't feel alone. Maybe me and you should have been doctors in another life.
0: I get the sweats. Remember, I can't. (laughs) Definitely not.
1: So um, I'm super excited about part three of this little mini series, The Turning Point for us, because this this is the journey that led us to all of the things that were going on with us medically, but also led us to this amazing podcast. And we have so much more to talk about. So that's why these first few episodes really are kind of me, 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 me about me and you so that our listeners can learn about us, learn about what brought us here. um, So that I just, do you have anything to add before we, we hang up with our
0: listeners today? No, I just think that everyone's story is worth being told and it's also worth being heard. And I just want um, whoever is listening find somebody who will listen and if nobody in your direct life will um, at the end we're going to give out our email address and we will we'll listen we- and, and if you want to have a conversation that's why we started this there's healing in conversation because it, it validates and it allows you to grow and learn and it, and it just connects you in a way and human connection is what life's about um so I just urge anybody who isn't being heard right now to know that we're willing to listen and we'll help you find somebody who will listen to you. You know, if we have to open the yellow pages, which don't exist anymore, age to myself with that one and find you a doctor and we'll go through from A to Z until we find a doctor that will listen to you. Like, like you, you deserve... You deserve health and the quality of life that you want to live and thrive in. Definitely. For sure. and Completely. So thank you guys for joining
1: us this week. Don't forget to tune in next week for part three of our three-part series. We're going to go into life after diagnosis, what brought us here, living with our diagnosis, and what we have learned about all of this through it. Don't forget to review our podcast. Give us a couple five stars if you feel the, so inclined and you like what you hear, right? And share it with your friends. The more people that we can have conversations with, the better. Please join our conversation by emailing us at j at gmail.com. That is all one word, all lowercase. You can also find us on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook with the name conversations with a and j all lowercase no spaces one of our favorite quotes right now that you should all hear and it goes back to what you said is every good conversation comes from good listening and we're here to listen to you guys and we're excited for
0: conversations that we're having or yet to have have a great night everybody bye